So I've got all these carefully curated topics from my buddy Ben Ennis. You know, it's a good hour. So subscribe, review, do all those things. Follow at JD Bunkus at Ben Ennis, something in there. You can search it. I, I always forget. You, you're you like such a company man. I think you do the Snet Ben thing, which is like... Sportsnet yeah. Ben. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you better I hope you don't ever do run into some other Ben who works at Sportsnet someday and just you decided unilaterally that you were the Sportsnet Ben. Like, that's pretty... Dude, That's pretty egotistical the, of you. You what? You think you're more valuable than a, no, a cameraman? No, I was going to say the, the the nightmare would be like Ben Mulrooney is like, hey guys, uh, I'll, I'll come, I'll come work for you. <laughs> Why? He, he would obviously be, become. That's number your one number one ever. Ben. That's your I top mean, Ben in Canada. That's Alpha Ben to you, Ben Mulrooney. It, in in Canadian media, who's 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 higher on the Ben Canadian media food chain than Ben Mulrooney? <laughs> Actually, what does he do anymore? I. T- what are you talking about? You think I know what he's okay. up to? What? Like, no, I have no idea. Son I'm of a dying that you though, even like, I that you even remember him. Chain. Yeah, it was yeah, not a great prime minister though. <laughs> it just it's not exactly like an elite one. It's not like he gets to just be prime minister because his dad was prime minister, right? No, we but don't do that in this. Country. We don't do that. That's not, <laughs> that's no. not how this works that's here. Anyway, uh, yeah, you ju- you're just making threats right off the top of my day about shoehorning in your own things yeah. as we go to air. So, do you want to get this out of the way or or what? You want to do okay. your thing before the list of things I have because I have well, you, you, I have four want- different topics for you. Okay, you were yelling at me, not yelling at me, but you were you were making a comment about how I don't listen to your show and know all your takes. Maybe yeah, you already sure. know this take if you listen to my show, but I know you don't. Yeah. So I do. My, Sometimes my, <laughs> my 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 thing I've I've spent the last two days thinking about and and building as my number one Blue Jays offseason baseball take is Bo Bichette is the center fielder of the future for this team. Yeah, that I this is. That this is not a, a 2023 thing, but it's a 2024 thing because it's mm-hmm. it's too too late. And you you actually do have a center fielder in Kevin Kiermaier this year, but that this is a make or break defensive year for Bo Bichette. Not offensively, I think we know he's just a, a great offensive player. And sure, can you just get by with average to below average defense at that position if the bat is good enough? Yeah, look at some of the shortstops that are continuing to play at that position. Xander Bogarts refused to move off of that position. They have a pretty good shortstop in San Diego. Hassan Kim, he has to move to second base because Xander Bogarts is like, I, I want to play here. And they're like, yes, sir, right away. How so wild yes. is that? That's honestly one of the craziest things about baseball is that it just this is a commonly accepted practice of don't worry, give the egomaniac his candy and we'll move the other guy to the – it's just like this is all Derek Jeter's fault, but I'm sure there yeah. were Jeters before Jeter, right? Oh, like, yeah. there's... well, Cal Ripken Jr. was the same thing, yeah. Okay, yeah, but a, yeah, is Jeter? A, he's not the, the apple in the Garden of Ego Eden. <laughs> well, I mean that plays into it though. The ego thing plays into it, and yes, maybe we're like inferring too much about Bo Bichette's ego. But and and no, I keep we referencing the conversation that you and I had with him yeah, many moons say, we, ago. We asked him direct, so yeah, and he I was don't like, know. Well, but again, what's he going to say? He's like, no, under no circumstances <laughs> am I moving up shortstop. He didn't say that. He said, yeah, like given the right person like yeah i'll play ball and i'm open to whatever makes the team better i think is I what know, he said man. you and i have had a million conversations with a million different people that's as close to a i don't ever want to move off this position as i think you'll ever get on the record well okay so here's but but 
every conversation we've heard about shortstops moving positions, it's second base or it's third base, which are clearly not glamour positions. Center field, still a glamour position. Like, I think you can sell <laughs> that to somebody if you say, okay. hey, not shortstop, but center field. Come yeah. on. They made a song about it. Like, come on. Yeah. And, and was and, there. Yeah. And um, while it's still a high leverage position, like he, he, being bad in center field is going to hurt your team, obviously. Like, I did crunch the numbers. There's a, like over 100 more outs that are decided by the shortstop than there are by the center fielder. So, like, even if you're an average to below average center fielder, that hurts you less than being an average to below average shortstop. I'm just saying, you got to think about it, Blue Jays. Dude, that's that's pretty wild considering this is the era of no balls in play, too, right? Mm-hmm. That those those numbers are the now era, how much more valuable a shortstop was, and potentially how much more valuable a shortstop is going to be. I'm still unaware of how drastic these shift rules are going to be put in place yeah that's why that's my growing impression right at first i thought oh my god no shift everybody's going to be you know that everyone's going to be ichiro we all just it's ball get bat to ball that's all we want the whole game is changing we're going back we're going back to the olden days just you know slap hitters who hit it every like hey cody bellinger maybe is worth 20 million dollars to the cubs because apparently the only reason he can't hit is is because of the shift but nah Every baseball person, yeah, they go, nah, it's not really going to be like that. <laughs> I go, okay. There we go. The shift will still basically be there. It's just not going to yeah, be as aggressive. Yeah, because you know why? You know why it won't change all that much? I mean, you kind of alluded to it, that the balls in play thing is the biggest problem, and I don't I don't think pitchers are going to all of a sudden go from throwing 103 to, like, 89, right? Like, that's the biggest issue. It's just impossible. The pitchers throw harder than ever before. How hard do you think pitchers are going to eventually pitch? Are are we going to be old men? Are we going to be old men and they're going to say there's a guy who throws 120? Or are we reaching the limits of human potential with this? I do think we're pretty close to the limit, right? Because, yeah, yeah, arm injuries are, are, they're so common. And although, I mean, the the miles per hour just continues to creep up year over year over year. I, I, the, 120 seems <laughs> outside of the realm of possibility. Yeah, but but don't you think that don't you think that Babe Ruth he was sitting around going, imagine someone threw 95, you know, yeah. like imagine someone cooked it up to 95 miles per hour. Like when they first got the radar gun and the first guy popped 100, they must have been freaking out. <laughs> they must have thought it was they're doing the old cartoony thing of like you know banging the radar gun to see if it's working. Well, you know that this is no it. Way. Like nobody, like everybody was like Walter Johnson threw like three hundred miles an hour. I I, okay. I guarantee you, like Walter Johnson barely hit ninety one, yeah. like in in his day. Yeah. So yeah. Um. I I guess oh, yeah. Th- there has been an incredible increase in velocity over the span. We're now like Babe Ruth. We're talking like a hundred years. And it's so. If I had to guess, you know, maybe ten miles an hour, we've gained in yeah. maximum pitcher velocity over a hundred. That's years, what I'm saying, so. guys. There's some guys that can touch like what 102, 103. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So in like that time, will we ever see? You know, yeah, close to 120. Will we see a guy who's like 118, and we go, holy crap, that's wild. And I don't mean you and I. We'll long be dead. You know, we'll be oh, yes. <laughs> we'll be in the grave. We'll be in the ground. <laughs> But maybe your sons will see it. Maybe your sons will see it when they're well, Who knows? I, don't I know. think it, yeah, it depends on human evolution because, yeah, we're much taller than we were like 100 years ago as, yeah, a, as a human race. getting taller all the time. It's really, it's really going to be a bother for me. You know when you see little old men and I go, well, at least I'm not that. And then you factor in that I'm shrinking and that, yeah. and that kids are only getting taller, that I am it's, just going to be that little old man. It doesn't matter. It sucks. Well, and, 
and that's it. We're getting more coordinated seven footers. Like if yeah, like no. the next Victor yeah. Webanyama of pitching, yeah. like that guy could maybe throw 120, right? If you just leverage the long limbs, yeah, maybe you could. Maybe that's how we do it. Right? This because is the, the discussion the that we're not having enough. Is that the normies are really? It's it's even harder out here every day for the normies. <laughs> the normies are just yeah. it's an uphill sled every single day. Anyway, um, yeah, I okay on your Boba Shed idea, um, yeah, this just reminds me of put Caberlet up at forward where you go. All right, like it seems more creative than it actually is because one, it's not going to happen. Two is it just. <laughs> Yeah, like I'm why, not trying to hate on this idea. Happen? No, because I mean, like you're, I'm not trying to hate on it. You're, you're yeah. <laughs> hating on it pretty extremely, in fact. No, because okay, here's the thing. These these are reasons why it's not going to happen. Um, he doesn't have a long term contract, and so you're not going to have any buy in from him. And in order to get him on a long term contract, the only way is is he's going to call the shots like the Xander Bogarts thing, and. The second part of it is, yeah, they don't have a ready-made option at short. And you said already that it's a future problem, like this is mm-hmm. something – or not a future solution, not a current solution. But my contention would be, when does he start to practice this? When does he start to focus on this? Like, when are you informing him that this is going to be his thing? Because, like you said, this year – I was talking to some – I've been talking to some people about this, but like through the the old DMs and through text messages about Kevin Kiermeyer, Everyone's talking about him like fourth outfielder, like he's going to be Ryan Tapia, where, oh, yeah, you see him everyone – it's not going to be that way. He's like a 3B, let's put it. He's going to play well, a yeah, lot. Yeah, but so was Rymel Tapia. Rymel yeah, Tapia okay. played a lot. Yes, but year. because of because of injuries, though. There were a lot of injuries, and so people went, mm-hmm. I know, and you made a face to me that people can't see, that, yeah, the Blue Jays are probably anticipating a pretty similar thing with Lourdes Gurriel Jr. and George Springer in their outfield, but that even still, this guy projects to play a solid chunk. Like, we're talking 120 yeah. games. Yeah, well, I think he's going to be – they anticipate using him kind of like the Tampa Bay Rays were using yeah. him, right? In 2021, so, he had 348 at-bats, 390 plate appearances, and appeared in 122 games. He is okay. he's, he's a defensive replacement in a lot of games, for sure. Mm-hmm. And, yep. yeah, against righties, he's going to probably hit ninth quite yep. often. So you've got him in center field for – he and George Springer in center field this year for essentially the entire season. Although it is – should be noted that I talked to Kylie McDaniel yesterday, who's one of the better guys at projecting outwardly what the what teams are going to do. Um, mm-hmm. Former front office guy, four different teams, pretty intimate knowledge at ESPN of uh, yeah what teams' motivations are, and he Only kept bringing male up... Kylie that I'm aware of as well. Yeah, like, do you yeah. know any other um, male Kylies? I don't. Kylie Minogue is the one it, that comes to mind. Obviously. Yeah, I, I I don't, but yeah. Um, Sorry, it's okay. He really did believe that the Jays could still be looking for someone who plays center field. Sure. I mean, like, and maybe Brian Reynolds is that guy, although yeah. he was a horrible defender at that position yeah, last that's a, year. Yeah, that's a weird one. Those defensive stats, everybody hates his guts now. You know, they look at Brian Reynolds and think he's You know horrific. who's anyway. actually amazing, who they've been in talks to be, well, the, the team's kind of match as far as need need is the Diamondbacks and Dalton Varsho is amazing yeah. like I love Dalton Varsho yeah it and, would be pretty incredible he, though if they brought that guy in and then what you do with Kiermaier like where he, well then he does then he's like the the great luxury of having a nine million dollar fourth outfielder right yeah, yeah. because anyway. Dalton Varsho can play the position yep. 
He can hit some bombs. He's left-handed. Like, he's a legit, legit player in center Yeah, field. I know him from his baseball reference page That's because I, Nobody, I never and, saw a Diamondbacks game. I, if Dalton Varsho walked into my living room right now, I would go, hello, uh, so, sorry, That's who are okay. you? I have no idea who Dalton Varsho is. That's fine. I, I'd never be able to pick him out of a lineup. Uh, I did one of the funniest things, by the way. Um, this, this is so stupid. So yesterday, Mike McKenna was on Real Kipper and Bourne, and he told a great story. You should go listen to their podcast about uh, being scored on by Ovechkin and him doing the hot stick on him, which is amazing, right? Yeah. Ovechkin did the hot stick on you. I saw a graphic of all the goaltenders that got scored on by Ovechkin, and I have Steve Valiquette later today to talk to him about some goaltending stuff. And I went and looked at this graphic of all these goalies, right? And I went, I wonder if Steve Valiquette's in here. And then I realized, like, what are you doing? You think you could pick Steve Valiquette out of a small pixelated, like, yeah, 100 no goaltender chance. list? No. Yeah, of course not. It was just a very dumb moment. Anyway, that's me with Dalton Varsho. Yeah, I just don't see a guy who, like, I, I don't see the path there. I, I don't see the pathway to letting Bo even try that out. And then it becomes a matter of, well, how many games is he getting there? And if you're taking him off shortstop, doesn't he feel he needs the reps there? It just... Yeah, no contract, um, desire to stay at short, no option that can actually play short for you right now. There's just, yeah, I, I get the principle of it and the idea behind it, and I do wish that the sport was more conducive to being a little bit more creative when it comes to those guys, and especially for a team that covets, right, guys who can play multiple positions, wow. why he wouldn't want to be that. But to me, there's there's too much evidence that would show you that that, that would never even be a, a consideration, although a fun 2023 is going to be a very important year for defense, infield defense for this team. This team is paying $21 million to an yep. extreme ground ball pitcher who is is going to be kind of the linchpin in the middle of this rotation. And I, as not much even as we him, all enjoy Jose Alec, Barrios, he likes to do that too. Yep, well, and Alec Manoa is not exactly Mr. Strikeout, right? Yeah. Like, this is a team that does... And Matt Chapman has been able to to shoulder the load quite a bit on the left side of the diamond. But, yeah, that, like, that is part of the, the shifting rules that might impact things just a little bit, um, is that you can't yeah. flip somebody over to the other side of the diamond. You can't maximize somebody's range. So, mm -hmm. you no, know, it just feels like a real big year for Bovichet's defense, where I was hey. sold on him at the end of 2021. I was like, this guy can play it adequately well, and his bat obviously allows mm -hmm. him to play that position. Holy cow, did uh, he finish 2022 on a down note defensively? Yeah, okay, but I think that this is why your point is, this is where your point really takes off, is... I thought it started high as well, though. No, it... Okay, sure. But I think we both do accept that. It is a fun thought experiment, but yeah. he is not going to accept doing that. What I think is more fascinating with Bo is the market really soured on him last year for a long period of time. And then he got hot at the end of the season. Everyone went, hey, all the numbers kind of were where they were supposed to be. But the defense was bad, and it didn't yeah. improve. And we're used to hearing, hey, basically the narrative around him from the moment he came up was, hey, he's going to keep working on his defense and he cares about playing short. Remember when we first heard about him? I can still remember sitting in the fan um, in, the, in the studio and Blair talking about the strides he was making at spring training at that mm -hmm. position and how hard of a worker he was. Do you remember that? Oh, the, the, the photo that Buck Martinez shared and, and everybody on the broadcast has seen it, the one where it's like the sun is just starting to rise at the complex yes. in Dunedin. There's Bobachet yes. under the tarp working on his defense. Right. And <laughs> if this defense continues to like, yeah, you're right. Range doesn't get a lot better with age. I'm sure it's not going to drop off of a cliff right now because of his age and his, yeah. But it's He's more arm, 
right? That's and it. Like the, and the stat cast metrics will tell you that it's his arm that is the problem, and the eye yes. test would also tell you that. Sure. So that's what I'm saying. If that doesn't improve this year or it becomes an even greater problem, given their rotation and the way that, yeah, the, the team is built where a lot of ground balls are going to be headed his way and Matt Chapman's way. And if he becomes a sore spot there and the bat, when it starts to go into those dips, what are those conversations going to be like and how much pressure is going to be on the organization to do something? I just still believe that the more likely outcome is not that he moves a position and is a Toronto Blue Jay, but that it's he's just moved off of the Toronto Blue Jays and ends up in a different organization. Anyway, um... I have let's round out all the baseball stuff I have then because I have some a, a couple of other things for you and they were inspired by little short talks you and I had about uh television shows and uh my thing yesterday on 82 games and I've been reflecting more on whether or not we can actually I I I think that those two things tie together so I'll put them together. Um from a philosophical standpoint, do you think the Jays should trade Danny Jansen or Gabriel Moreno? Um I understand the argument that you're making that, like, for a team that's in the mode of winning a World Series in 2023, why you would trade, like, the less proven commodity, the guy with maybe the higher upside, but the less certain, um, at least upcoming season in 2023. But... I'm just not convinced I, I, about the Danny Jansen trade value, to be honest. That's the no, no, I'm... I, oh, but listen, if that's... If that's your argument, is that you can't get enough back in a Danny Jansen trade, then I'm all I'm all about it. I've made my piece with like maybe the best thing, best piece you can get in return for Danny Jansen is Ian Happ, who's great, who's who's real good. He's like a, a rich man's Kevin Biggio, plays all over the diamond, but he's on an expiring contract. Like this is his final year of team control with the Chicago Cubs, mm-hmm. but this is a guy you can easily plop down in one of the corner outfield spots. He can spend some time at second base. Um, yeah, he he provides a lot of the things that you would like uh, out of a left-handed bat, and you're giving up three more years of, of team control, or actually I think it's only two more with Danny Jansen. So maybe that sweetens the, the deal a little bit for the Cubs who have Jan Gomes at 35 years old as like their opening day catcher, mm-hmm. which is probably not a scenario that they're, they're all that pleased with. Um, yeah, no, like clearly if you're looking – if you're trading Moreno – your that's like a var show package. Like you, you're kidding yourself if you if you think it's like a Danny Jansen as the as the the linchpin of a Dalton var show or a Brian Reynolds trade. No, if you're getting yeah, into that stratosphere, but at one point we that, thought, but at one point we did think that Danny Jansen was a solution for a an outfielder for outfielder trade, right? Because the St. Louis thing was basically yeah, yeah. It was it was like, the, like hey, this is your to be safety extremely school. Extremely wrong. Like yeah, the, it the, was the unbelievably wrong. Really valued Lars Newtbar. It turns yeah. out. Yeah, and in there's fact, good reason for that. Yeah, it, it turns out actually that yeah they were no not no chance. <laughs> well, and Sean Murphy, right? Sean Murphy is better than yeah either of those guys. Like, yeah, and, and he went and for has, not that much. He went for the poo poo platter, five prospects, and it was the three team trade involving the Brewers. But like, look at the way that thing has been analyzed, and and the top end of the prospects that are are going to the Oakland A's, and maybe the A's are just a a bad team. But that's that was the best they could do, right? Like that guy had to move this off season. They talked to all the teams the Blue Jays have been talking to in the catcher market, and this yep. is what they felt best about pulling the trigger on, which was an underwhelming return for. A better catcher than either Gabriel Moreno, Alejandro Kirk, or Danny Jansen, and 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 now the Blue Jays, I guess, are the, the at the very top of the market for 
maybe a, a Chicago or an Arizona, but yeah, the the market has proven that you shouldn't set your sights too high on a Danny Jansen trade. Well, this is why I bring it up is, okay, um, I, I always thought that they should trade Danny Jansen, that he was, um, that two things could be true. He's an underrated Toronto Blue Jay who, when he was healthy, was having a ton of success now for basically two seasons, right? And I, when he became started to pull the ball more, it really had a, a positive effect on his offense. He's extremely well-liked and respected by his teammates. That's a, a no doubt about it, right? Yeah. It, it seems like anybody that comes in contact with that dude believes in his leadership ability and, yeah, his character, which I think counts. I, really, I do think that counts. Going into the offseason, I thought he was the obvious guy to trade because I went, well, you can't just move off of a guy like Gabriel Moreno if you think that he's going to be the catcher for your team for the next 10 seasons. Like, it just that doesn't make any sense. And Alejandro Kirk, I do believe, helps you win now more than Danny Jansen does. Like, those, those two things. So you go, okay, combine that, and that should be your catching situation. Jansen will have value. And now we've gone into the offseason with that idea of he was going to be traded for a Cardinals outfielder and that that was going to work, and great. Put it down in pen. I don't think that the Blue Jays... I, I'm not sure that they're in a position where they can trade him for a bunch of prospects back that they hope later that they can pivot and turn into something else. Maybe, but I actually think that that's better than taking some fringy major leaguer of like a Hap. And I know Hap's not a fringe major leaguer, yeah. but I just... I would rather have the prospect pile for Jansen and then say, we'll do something about this later than getting a major league player that I think that you could pretty easily get in the free agent market. Like, is it hard to get a Hap-esque player left out here? Like, they just signed Kevin Kiermaier to $9 million bucks, and I view him kind of in that mold of, yeah, a guy you don't want playing every day. $9 million what bucks. I'd, what I'd rather do is just sign one of the guys, uh, the left-handed corner outfielder types. Like, I know, man, Michael Brantley is so injured so often. Yeah. But, like, <laughs> yeah, maybe th that means you can get him on a one-year deal. Maybe uh, yeah, less than ten million bucks. Um, I, and, I, I just, uh, and I you think keep all three catchers. I don't think it's a nightmare to keep all three catchers. I really don't because Alejandro Kirk, he, I, I think his defense is underrated. But people are starting to maybe realize the the value that he delivers in framing at the bottom of the zone. Which, mm -hmm. by the way, the the old sinker baller coming out of Chris Bassett's arm might yep. be even more valuable this season, um, but we also know that his power just gets totally sapped when he's catching three times a week, right? Like, he needs to maybe catch a couple of times, and he's your primary DH, but you want the bat in there as often as possible. I think you, you'd be well served to have, and, and we know one of these guys is going to be injured, like, and more specifically, Danny Jansen is going to get injured, because he's been great when he's been healthy, but that guy has not been the mo like the model of health over the last no. couple of years, and it's a position in which Guys do get hurt quite often. Plus, there's Gabriel Moreno's potential versatility. We know he was on the playoff roster because they were convinced that in a pinch, like multiple injuries, this guy could play like a corner outfield spot. We know he's already played third base in minor league games. We know that Matt Chapman is only a Blue Jay guaranteed for one more year. Like the idea that we might see Gabriel Moreno as, a, as an infielder down the line is not out of the realm of possibility. I, I don't think it's a nightmare to to have all three catchers on opening day. No, I to be honest, I actually think that that's maybe even a smarter solution, uh, especially since if you hold on to those catchers, there are injuries, and that that's always a lame thing to say is, well, you're going to wait for an injury, but it's very true. A team could end yeah. up having an injury at that position in spring training, and all of a sudden they are a little bit more desperate for Danny Jansen, knowing that he could be able to step in and do the job pretty quickly. My, I, I guess... 
I'm more open to the idea of them trading Jansen for prospects, given the nature of the farm, and that this team, the thing I think I, I overlooked a little bit, even though they just did sign Chris Bassett and the offseason's not over and blah, 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 is that the Blue Jays' best path to improvement is still always going to be as a team that can make those kind of trades rather than a free agent destination because they're still going to have to go over the money. And now that the money is getting back to insane banana lands where everybody makes 300 mil, that's anything good. I just don't think that the Jays are going to be in on that many, those, those kind of players very often. I think that they'll probably try to fork that money over for Vladdy, but they know that they're not going to have two of those guys and Vlad and Bo. And so, yeah, they're going to always have to have a rich and deep farm to trade guys from to acquire what this team needs. Because as of right now, as it sits today with their free agency, right, everyone's very excited about Bassett, and as they should be. Mm-hmm. But you're really hoping that Bassett can replicate what Ross Stripling gave you last year, right? Like, you're, are you signing yeah, up for that today? I think he's a better bet to do that. I, I, I agree. I think he's a much better free agent signing than Ross Stripling would have been. What I'm saying is you're hoping that he gives you exactly what Ross Stripling gave you last season. Correct. Okay. So you're back to square one. Ex- and except for you don't have Teoscar Hernandez, you've traded him for Kevin Kiermaier yeah. essentially in a relief pitcher. Yep. So yep. and a relief pitcher that is That's not why you have to add another cor- like another outfielder is coming, whether yeah, it's via no. free agency or via trade. Like that that has to happen. Absolutely, unequivocally, no doubt. All I'm saying is that the Bassett signing people went, oh yes, finally. But all it did for me after the yeah. you know bloom was off the rose was remind me that. Boy, they, they, there's still a lot of work to do here. We haven't even had conversations of, do they add another high velo arm? Do they add more at second base? Like, yeah. are we really just going to go into the season with another year of Espinal Biggio? That's going to be cool. That's the... How dare the, you. Whit Merrifield proved oh, sorry. Uh, his yeah, by the end of the yeah. year. He was, he was red hot. How dare you forget? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I forgot. I, <laughs> how dare I forget Whit? Anyway, yeah, that's my point is there's, there's other trouble spots for this baseball team that they haven't exactly worked out yet. And yeah, uh... Yeah, I don't know. The, the Maybe idea you're right. of trading Jansen for prospects, unless you're like 100% certain, like you have, it, that's like a three team trade that you're like immediately flipping those. Pro- like, no, I, I don't need to immediately flip them. That's what I'm saying. Oh, I, I, I do. No, no. You're, you're trying to win a World Series in 2023. That's okay? why I asked you about your philosophical view of it, is because to me, like, again, borrowing something that Kylie said was, hey, teams don't really trade those top 100 guys. That's why he thought yeah. that the prospect package that the A's got back wasn't that bad because it was a bunch of guys that were outside of that top 100 group, yeah. but some bullets that could end up there. And you go, oh, that's actually okay. You reframe it that way. It's not the worst thing in the world. I, so the Jays should operate like the Oakland A's. No, I'm saying that if you trade away Gabriel Moreno, that hopefully the market views that as, holy crap, those top 100 guys don't come up very often. And so there should be some type of, uh, if you're moving that guy, here's what we would offer you around baseball. If you find something, that should be your number one priority right now, is if there's nothing for Danny and you feel like the only way to improve your team in a significant way is through trading someone, then fine, trade the kid. But otherwise, I actually think that you go opposite. I'm not trading Danny Jansen and moving off of a catcher, a more valuable position, a good player when he's healthy, for Hap. Like, that's the type of trade I actually want to avoid the most. I would rather that the Blue Jays try to stock up the farm system, add some depth to it, and then figure out some of that later and decide, you know what, we've got added flexibility here because this is our path to improvement at some point. Like, that's it for me. Because right now, it sure feels like they won't trade Tiedemann, they don't want to trade Moreno, and then they have a prospect that some people think is a top 40 guy, some people think is outside the top 100, but is a very boomer bust prospect. And then outside of that, it's a lot of maybes, a lot of lottery tickets, and a not a lot of certainty. So I, I don't, I don't well, hate the idea of taking I, a. I, 
I couldn't disagree more. Like as far as yeah. the, the Jansen for prospects or the the Jansen for Hap thing, like Hap help, helps you win a World Series in 2023. He's been extremely durable the last couple of years. He plays all over okay. the diamond. He's a switch hitter. Where does Guys he play had, in the playoffs? I mean, probably in a corner outfield spot, right? Oh, or second okay. base. He like you. You want to talk about getting Whit Merrifield out of the lineup? Well. I mean, at this point, he's well. Now you got playing. four guys that do that, so. Well, you, the Blue Jays at this moment have like uh, Whit Merrifield penciled in as they have a Whit Merrifield and like a Santiago Espinal in the lineup right now, right? Because they yeah. don't have a right fielder. So yeah, yeah. so <laughs> he he plays one of the corner outfield spots. The right fielder is George Springer. Uh, okay. Yeah. All right. Then Kevin Kiermaier is in the lineup every single day, which I don't think yeah. he is. Like he's definitely not playing against lefties. But yeah, he can play some second base and like not not anything extremely well because he's not going to win a Gold Glove at second base. But he can play second base. He can play left field because we know Lourdes Gurriel Jr. is getting hurt at some point as well. Yeah. No, I, I, Ian Happ helps you win a World Series in 2023, and it stinks um, that you only have the one year of, of team control, but you can re-sign him, I guess, in theory as well. No, I'm, I'm, I'm all on board the Danny Jansen for Ian Happ bandwagon right now. Yeah. Uh, let's take a quick break. Um, and then I want to talk about 82-game leagues. Uh, yesterday I was talking to Frank Cervelli, and he mentioned, how does hockey have its F1 moment? And I just don't think it's possible. Maybe you do. Quick break, good hour. That continues next. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so... How do I tie these two things together? Yesterday, I'm talking to Frank Cervelli about 82 game seasons and how, yeah, hockey hockey probably needs to be a little bit more reflective about ways it can improve. The problem with the league, as far as I see it, or one of the major problems with the league, is that they're they're too self satisfied with the product that they have. That they point to things like goal scoring being up, more skilled young players and getting out of their debt as signs that the league is in a completely fine position. And and I think that that's true to a degree, but if we're talking about league growth in terms of year over year and what this league can be and its place in North American sports, that's one where you say, okay, so you're fine with being extremely popular in each market in Canada, but not really having any type of a grip in the States and potentially tumbling down the rankings when it comes to coverage there, that you don't really have any aspirations of entering the fray when it comes to these other bigger leagues. And I suggested maybe trying to cut the schedule down so that the games felt a little bit more important, whatever. Embracing some of the things about hockey that I think we all love. Look at yesterday. Ryan Reeves had two huge hits. Guess what went viral? Ryan Reeves, two huge hits. Guess what never goes viral? Uh, guys like Dennis Malgan making a play in the middle of the ice where we go, oh, the skill, right? Um, Poor Dennis Malgan. People still love the physicality of hockey. Anyway, he talked about, hey, it needs its F1 moment, right? And and referencing that, it's in 2017, F1 went from 350 million viewers to 490 in 2018, the year after Drive to Survive. You texted me yesterday, hey, uh, the the version of Drive to Survive for the PGA and for tennis is coming, right? What is yeah. the tennis pro league called? What? 
What, the ATP, ATP. Tour? Yeah, that's and it, there's ATP. WTA is the women's. Yeah. It's both of them. So I was thinking about whether or not I'm going to get into the PGA and to the ATP one. And I don't think so. You know why? Because the things about Drive to Survive was it wasn't known, but also the stakes were so high, right? We need stakes and drama in these shows. And the reason why Drive to Survive worked so well is because what we learned is, hey, there's only two of these seats on every single team. And the guys that are on the... Yes, exactly. They hated each other on each team. And that the drama within the teams was actually the most compelling part about this series. And not only that, not only that, the thing that you're doing... You could die. You could die. Yeah. You know, you're fighting for your job. You're fighting for your life. You're clinging on. If you're even in the Ferrari second seat, you might be gone tomorrow, right? We started that series, Drive to Survive, where Daniel Ricardo, like, he's winning Monaco, and he's the biggest star of the show, and we're going, look at this guy. And by the new season, he can't get a team. <laughs> like, no. for five years later, hey, he can't get a... driver on Red Bull now. He cannot get in a car. It is yeah. extremely compelling. What are the stakes for the golfers, right? Oh, you didn't win as much money okay yeah. hooray and Maybe you brought no up the yacht yeah exactly like and I, I just don't they're all friendly with each other there's yeah. no stakes in terms of personal animus and the only animus that we've seen between them has been the corniest thing that's ever existed which was bryson dechambeau no uh, and his I, weird I, feud here, i'll let you continue okay, i will say it. like i agree with a lot of what you're saying here the golf yeah. thing like, for the first time ever in this sport, there was real animus, right, between okay. the PGA golfers and Let's the live it. golfers. Let's yeah. see it then. And, uh, well, there was – I don't believe it's there. The, I mean, the, the, the producer had a pretty telling uh, poll quote about how interesting he thinks this season of the uh, the golf one. Okay, here you he is. You mean the person uh, with the most invested in the show's no, okay, success so thinks it's going to okay, be interesting? Okay, take it, take it for what it's yeah. worth. But here I, I just pulled curious, a tweet yeah. from the, 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 the chief creative officer at Vox Media – uh, he's tw- he tweeted this out. This I try to manage expectations in general, okay, but having lived through it this year and now having sat through hours of edits and footage, I can confidently say this was a good year to make a show about pro golf. Which, yeah, yeah no, I think it would a... be, right? Like if you're going to drop in, okay. it's kind of like Drive to Survive drops in and people started watching that show uh-huh. at the conclusion of the most insane season of Formula One racing of all time in which mm-hmm. – the the championship was decided on the final lap of the final race in controversial fashion. Like that's it does kind of feel like that in golf that the PGA okay. Tour split apart and one of the all time pro golfers, Greg Norman, is this this like vilified figure. Okay, first of all, that quote was far less sexy than I thought it was going to be. He just said, "Hey, if we were ever going to do this, this was the time to do it." <laughs> so, yeah. correct. That's right. I we have seen Tiger Woods take open shots at Greg Norman. I think that there is real hate for Greg Norman, but we're not going to see Greg Norman in this doc and them going back and forth in a way that's Greg Norman versus Tiger Woods or Greg Norman versus the PGA and them talking about each other back and forth, right? Greg Norman's not going to be a part of this. Well, I would assume not. Why would he be if this is for PGA and it's a PGA product? I'm guessing that they wouldn't want a constant reminder of, like, his presence and him getting to, like, bark up his side of his feelings about this thing, especially given the nature in which he's conducted a bunch of his business. It seems is pretty, yeah, well, on the what, shady what side. Well, what I can, I can pretty well guarantee you're going to get is, like, the conversations between the, the guys that left for live and, like, them saying, hey, no, I'm yeah. going to stick around, and then all of a sudden, under cover of darkness, departing. And, and being okay. in Saudi Arabia. So to me, F1, there is a 
the the nature of the sport and the nature of the athletes, I think that they they care more about hey, I, I like I'm just viewed as a vicious competitor because that's being a race car driver and being ruthless is totally acceptable within my profession. So anything I say or do is fine because I am fighting for a one seat in a car in its life or death and I don't have time for pleasantries. I think that golfers and tennis players they need to be able to still play the political game with one another. They're not going to be caught on camera talking complete junk about somebody that is a hor- in a horrific way. I just don't see it. Why? Like, be- but no, like they should have even be- less impetus to, to to be cordial. Like they're independent contractors. All yeah, that matters is we've whether seen they win or lose. But we've seen that's not true. We've seen, but uh, except for this, except for this, both those sportsmen. This is what you just left out. What is the main thing around those sports that you? Like when you think of that sport, what comes to mind? Oh, well, they're all tennis? rich. Like all, no. all, all three Etiquette. of those sports in, in, involve rich no. people. What? Etiquette, etiquette, etiquette. That these athletes are judged on the way they comport themselves. Their etiquette. Well, a race car driver is not judged on etiquette. Play. No, yeah. uh, there's no way that a golfer, that a professional golfer is going to come off as crass, rude. Like there's no Max Verstappen coming in this season. There's no, there's no Christian Horner who shows up and calls guys jerks and trashes people like the way that he would publicly eviscerate Toto. It's just, it's not going to happen. And so I would rather keep my expectations low and then be surprised by what little morsels, but even just branding these things under the same umbrella to me is foolish. Anyway, the reason why I don't think it's going to work for an 82-game team is the exact same reason. You can't have infighting within a group. And if you show that publicly on a sports team, it's a death knell, right? Yeah. When we get little snippets of that, right? Oh, the yeah. Well, I shouldn't say little snippets. This was a pretty big-ass deal. Was Draymond Green knocking out his teammate? Like, we know these things happen. We know that teammates hate each other. We know that teammates are vicious to one another, right? And we know that there are certain guys within the league that despise one another, that there are these awesome competitive stories that are in there. But the problem with the 82-game leagues, the players aren't incentivized enough to do it. In the NBA, the guys already know that they're big enough stars, and they don't need to do that in order to get big anymore. Like, that's not it. They're just it's trying actually to protect more fun. what they have, right? Like, exactly. There's, there's no upside. Honestly, there's but in hockey, little upside to the F1 guys, too, but I, I think they, did, they didn't realize. Well, that's why Max Verstappen's ducked out. That's why he exactly. said, yeah, I'm good. I'm good on this. I'm, I'm tired of being portrayed as a villain, and I'm not even involved in the series anymore. That's fine. There's upside, though, for the team principles, and so that's why they engage in it because it's, it's extremely compelling and entertaining and they know it, and they become even bigger celebrities through the show, right? Like, they have... Well, and that that seems like part of the gig, too, right? Like, to like to be a team principal, it's like you want to be a celebrity. And, yeah, you're, like, yeah. good at uh, racing strategy. Well, the one I guy's suppose, married to yeah. a Spice Girl, so, yeah, I think he cares about... <laughs> and he lives in a castle. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah it's like, every once in a while they show yeah. his house, and it's, like, but in this... this is- beautiful meadow and his kids are riding horses around. And he hates being there and he's just like, I just want to go back to the the ranch. I'm so sick of this. And and Jerry Halliwell goes, did you have fun at work today? He's like, shut up! You're insufferable. He's miserable outside. His entire life is just misery. Anyway, um, yeah, I just don't think, I think that hockey's could be so incredibly compelling. I think back to the early 24-7 series, the Penguins and Capitals, the early Winter yeah. Classic, and how awesome they were. You saw Sidney Crosby swearing going to the penalty box. You saw guys 
ripping each other and getting angry at each other. I remember we got to see Henrik Lundqvist was in a band with John McEnroe. There were real compelling things that happened. And guess what? The product got watered down, watered down, watered down. Yep. And you know what we have now? And oof, I might even get in trouble for saying this. But like, I can't believe people care about... There's the Maple Leafs thing every team does where they go, here's the blueprint. And after the game, it's just a, a guy giving the belt to someone and people retweet the hell out of it. And they go, Wow! Someone on the team handed the belt to someone. This is so compelling. And you go, that's what they want. That's what these leagues want. And guess what? That's what those players want. They just want it to be, we gave the fire hat. We gave the championship belt. We gave the home run jacket. That's what we gave to our teammates. That's the part of us that we want you to see. We don't want anything else. We don't want the drama. And in reality, the way to like really make these leagues in infinitely more compelling is to let people in a little bit more on the dirt but every league wants to be completely sanitary and completely clean and every player wants to have that image now and they're terrified of any other outcome and so we're just not going to get it and it's just it's never going to work and it's unfortunate because it it's like these are entertainment products and the some of the most compelling things is being able to better tell the stories but the stories that these leagues want to tell are this guy's into sneakers yeah okay what else? Like, yeah, that's that's I, I, it. But I think, but you didn't you just like put a didn't you just punctuate the whole thought with like it's never going to happen because I, I I agree with you. Like, I yeah, don't you think sucks. the early part of this leaf season, despite some of the personalities being kind of bland, uh, well across hockey in general. No, but that's but it. Even, man. There even are interesting did, personalities. Like, We've met them. We know them. Like, there are guys in the league sure. that have something to say that have hilarious stories to tell. Why do you think that man? The number one podcast mm -hmm. in Canada. Is spitting chiclets, right? Mm -hmm. It's and get, what is the format of the show essentially? It's a lot of guys telling stories from their careers that they weren't comfortable telling while they were in them, and there's time and there's space, and yeah. they they give you a little bit of a morsel of something. And if you could do some of that storytelling and attach it to the season, to me that would make it in, infinitely more compelling. And yes, the sport is changing; it's not the same as it used to be, where it was a little bit more rough around the edges. There's definitely it's a little bit more clean cut. Then it like of course it is of course of course of course, but they've they've got to find a way to be more competitive if they ever want to be more than it is right now. Which is I I'm telling you I think that hockey is going in a pretty boring direction. Like you're always going to yep. be interested in your local team, but I have never cared less, and this builds year over year in the rest of the league. Like I just yeah. I'm sorry I want to see well, Connor McDavid play is, because you know he's what? special like special special, and then outside of him I'm, I'm never like. Oh man, I really want to see what the Minnesota Wild are up no. to. Like, if you story tell and you make me yeah. interested in these personalities, I will. Yes. Well, I. You know what? We just talked about the players, how they're trying to protect what they have, right? Like, yeah. you know, there's they only see downside to it. I think the 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 commissioners of these pro sports leagues, and particularly like Gary Bettman. Despite the fact they don't have everything, like yeah, you mentioned it. The revenue is is the, they're like eliminating the the debt that the players owed them years of, ahead of expectations, and that pro yeah. sports live sports is still like the last bastion of of uh, of a television commodity, right? Because it's it's PVR proof, and you can actually sell ads against it, and and yeah. and the the rights are actually still valuable. That you you play it safe when when you're in that position. That's what this league feels like they're doing like even the idea of expanding the postseason yeah. right which every other league has done to great success and does it mean that you know it maybe uh, uh, you know some teams 
are going to diminish the value of the regular season? Maybe, but there's also the other argument, the other side of it, that there's in, in Major League Baseball, there is now buys, and yeah, winning your division is more important. You can sell it that way to hey. your 32 teams, but that the NHL like immediately swats that down as if that would be an affront to the, his, the history of the game. I mean, just tells you where their thought process is. Dude, um, one of the biggest issues it has, it's so funny because the NHL does things like incredibly backwards, right? To me, like they talk out of both sides of their mouth. Gary Bettman and everyone basically insinuates that, hey, the salary cap could go up a lot if one of the major market teams does, has a mm-hmm. run. Right? right? And then they go, but we really want league parity. And you go, but wait, well, like, hold on. Yeah. So you're yeah. saying there's more money in this thing if the teams that people care about go deep and more money will go in around yeah. the league where there is revenue sharing. Okay, cool, 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 cool. So yeah. I want to know that, but then you want the parity, fine, because you want all the teams. And they say they want rivalries because that's why they have this playoff format, right? Is to build rivalries, build a hate uh-huh. between the teams, build familiarity, breeds contempt, all these different things. And then yet... Who's the, what's the rivalry between individuals in the sport right now? Like we just saw how it works. You know why Calgary, Edmonton, people care about it? Because there's stakes. People get invested in it. There hasn't been Ottawa, Toronto. In, in, like we've been trying to force Ottawa, Toronto and Ottawa, Toronto and Montreal, Toronto. And it's like, all oh, right, it's sometimes maybe a little bit there. But for the most part, we haven't had Ottawa, Toronto since the early 2000s, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's the last time we had it. What are, what are the rivalries in sports right now? There's still Ovechkin and Crosby. But guess what? That's old now. Now that's one of respect, not hatred. There's no hate. There's no stakes. No. There's no well, stakes the in any of these things. Being removed from the game a lot too, right? No, like but it's... I know that I even if that's gone, I like the physicality from the game is gone in Edmonton, Calgary. But mm-hmm. if you tell me that, hey, it's going to be Connor McDavid in this, and the stakes are it's for the Battle of Alberta. This is for bragging rights in an entire province. I'm in. I love it. And I know because the populace cares. And it's easy to tell some of those stories, but you're telling those stories through the lens of the fans and how they care. And that's often what we do with hockey storytelling is it's always through the lens of a fan. It's through the lens of a Leaf fan, right? What it means to them. Oh, my God. What it means to the family. What it means to, you know, the community. All of this different stuff. Same with Montreal. Same with all the Canadian markets. It's never through the lens of the players, what it means to the players. They're always diminishing it. They're always downplaying it. Yeah. It's always it's just because. another game to us. Man, I had Jason Robertson on my show the other day. He's playing his brother. Yeah. He's co- he's yeah. playing Toronto. He's on a point streak with Mitch Marner. It's the first time in NHL history. And I'm not trying to I'm not trying to like rip this guy. This isn't my point. Okay, it was great of him and gracious of him to give time to the show. But he said it's just another game to him. Like, yeah. how am you supposed to care when a player is telling you flat out that they sh- you shouldn't really care? I know that it's about trying to keep your level throughout a season, but. Mm-hmm. Like, is this the best way to do it? Is this the best way to storytell? And this is one of the biggest problems with the NHL is that you have a league and players who are basically in cahoots with not really caring about selling fans on that they care about this sport or that they care about this game or that they care about the storytelling. And frankly, some of it is happening in the NBA. The only difference with the NBA is there are stakes because we know the egos of the stars. They play such a large import in it that when they go head-to-head, it's just like yet, like when Jason Tatum goes head-to-head with LeBron, you can understand that stake immediately, right? Mm-hmm. Hockey doesn't have that. McDavid even is only playing a little over 20 minutes a night, a little over a third of the game. Like, it just doesn't work that way. And so hockey, to me, that's what they've got to figure out. Do you just want to continue to turn fans away by saying, hey, nobody look at anything other than we're playing on the ice, but the product actually is kind of inferior to a bunch of other sports, unless you are a diehard for this, or... Do you want to start letting people in on the storytelling? Do you want to open up the books a little bit and have personality be more than who has the biggest fedora? 
Yeah, that I mean, now uh, I'm thinking because n- no individual, no individual team, unless you are, I guess, the Arizona Coyotes, where you have so much upside and very little downside, and you have a lot of young players who have no recourse, right? If you're like, hey, we're putting cameras into the dressing room after yeah. and before every single game, it, this is like a CBA thing, like almost next CBA. No, they need a new of, commissioner. Yeah, you, you need to say, hey, here's the deal. Because you guys can't individually be responsible for saying yes to this. This is part of the thing that, you know, when you sign the CBA and you agree to the terms of being a player in this league, you also agree that when you're in an NHL facility, we can videotape you, like, at all times. And, yeah, like, we're not going to try and screw you, and maybe there'll be some oversight. But, yeah, that no, this is now an open league. But the league has interest in making sure that their players aren't hated completely, too, right? Like, 100%. This is just, it, it just is funny to me, too, that... Some of the players that actually do resonate with throughout their careers, right? They just the guys who people still think about or care about when they have an opinion. It's usually guys who are agitators, yeah. right? Agitators yeah. still have pretty lengthy careers, and they're still pretty well known, and they're usually loved in their market, right? Yeah, you think and even outside Tucker, of it, like people are like, "Man, I hated you when you." Yeah, played, but it's but a loving like hate. But it's a yeah, loving, course, it's a respectful hate, yeah. right? No, so, but that gets back to what I was talking about, but the the physicality of the game, right? That it's it's leaned so hard into the into the skill, which is great. Like goal scoring continues to go up, and save percentage Ray's way wrong. down, and fourth lines can score the puck, which is great and great, great, great. But yeah, right. what what makes it's this all the same sport? Guy unique or what used to is that there's lots of hitting and that fighting is still allowed yep. and uh i i understand and that the, you had the lines that did that. different things and you had lines yeah. that had different complexions of different kinds of players and you did have goons like you know i love the stewie analogy that he always makes which is you know you used to play that little nintendo video game and there'd be you know yeah, the right, tall skinny, skinny guy. guy the yeah. short little fat guy the skill guy the speed guy and it's sports are more fun when there is diversity in the lineup like it just they are it's more interesting when you can relate to more things than just one you know prototype exact thing that's why i'm i've said it yesterday but i'm worried about the nba in some regards when a team like the raptors goes wouldn't it be great if the whole league was just six foot nine guys who do this have the exact same skill set (laughs) wouldn't it be great if just a seven footer shoot threes too and that nobody goes inside the paint it was kind of fun watching scotty barnes score inside last night you know like get two feet in the paint and shoot that little baby hook i was like hard to win though getting outscored by 30 points from the three-point line so yeah like i mean that's that's the issue like yeah, if, no, if that, I, it, I, I'm all I'm, I'm all for the idea of like yeah diverse like having a team that maybe doesn't rely on the three except it's impossible. That's that's the problem that's, with that sport yeah, right now. I know that's what I'm saying. I worry about the future of that league from that standpoint, but I know that they'll always be able to kind of manufacture some drama. Sports should be the best thing ever. It should be a reality TV show with stakes and drama. And right now, that's what I feel like is really missing from the NHL. And here you don't feel that because there's extreme drama with the Leafs because the internal pressure to win with a core yeah. that is peaking is, yeah. is extremely compelling. But I'm saying go look around the rest of the league. Like, and that's why you don't. <laughs> that's why you're not doing it. That's why nobody is doing it. Anyway, uh, we got to run. Um, I'm coming back with Steve Valiquet. I'm coming back with Joe Cacharo. And I am going to talk a lot about the Raptors in the next hour because, yeah, I, here's my tease for the next hour. Um, everybody's scratching their heads trying to figure out what's going on with the Raps. Uh, I think it's pretty easy to figure out. And Ben might have alluded to one of the things right there. Uh, so that's the end of Good Hour. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe. Please review. Please share. Do all of those different things. It really helps us out a lot. And it shows that uh, you enjoy these segments, uh, which helps us be able to do stuff like this, dumb stuff like this. Uh, so anyway, do those things. And Benny, I will uh, talk to you soon. See you, pal. See you, man. Quick break, and we'll be back with Steve Valiquette. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Merrick Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
So, goaltending has been a bit of an issue this season for a lot of teams. Most people thought that was going to be a huge issue for the Toronto Maple Leafs, and yeah, it really hasn't been that way. Their backup is posting back-to-back shutouts, and granted, one of them is against the Ducks, so it gives a little bit of an asterisk. Like, it should be basically at the bottom of your hockey DB page or hockey reference page. Like, you got shutout against the Anaheim Ducks. It's like, I don't know, half shutout, something. I don't, I don't know. He played really well in the first, though. Anyway, uh, Steve Valaket was great. Uh, loved talking to him last time I had him on. Uh, CEO of Clearside Analytics, former NHL goaltender and consultant, analyst for the Rangers on MSG. What's up, Steve? How are we doing, man? I had a shutout against the Anaheim Ducks. Well, not these Ducks. <laughs> not these ones. Like, I think, yeah, I, hear you, buddy. I think the, the Ducks you faced might have cared just like a little bit more than the Ducks that played the Leafs the other night. You know what? Uh, the Rangers, it kind of sums up their season, J.D. They lost mm-hmm. to that Anaheim Ducks team and are the only team so to lose to the Anaheim Ducks this season regulation. And that's Oof. sort of where the season lies for the Rangers. It's, it's funny. It's, mm-hmm. been, uh, it's been an up-and-down, helter-skelter type of ride, J.D. Uh, there's mm-hmm. subjectively seven losses in there between the Ducks we just talked about, San Jose, Columbus, Detroit, Nashville, Ottawa, and Chicago. The Rangers have lost to those seven teams this year. And I'd say that if you had a Ranger team that at this point last year was winning games that they should have lost, they are, and the narrative is around the team this year, they have not won games they should have won. Yeah, well, that was the case for the Leafs early on in the season. They completely bombed out during their first couple of weeks. Uh, The coach was essentially all but fired. Um, the goaltenders were hurt. The blue line was banged up, and the the core forwards were not performing up to snuff. And they lost to Anaheim, but it was in overtime. They lost to the Sharks. They had some really really bad losses on the West Coast. Came back, and they've been on a tear since. Rangers on a tear right now too. Five one and one in their last seven. Um, yeah. Before I get into some goalie stuff with you, what, what's the reason for the turnaround? And is it just as simple as being like, yeah, Shesterkin's better? No, it's it's been wild. I'll, I'll give you a quick five game recap. Uh, this is what we've seen. Uh, five games ago, the Rangers lost at home, and it was the worst loss of the season to the Chicago Blackhawks. They lost 5-2 and got outplayed, and it was it was bad. Um, Monday night, coming off of that Saturday loss, they were down 4-3 uh, going into the third period and scored three goals against St. Louis and came back and won 6-4. So that's where there started to be a little bit of life because in the month of November, the Rangers lost – four significant games where they were up by two or more goals. And three of those were at MSG against the Islanders, the Oilers, and the Devils, where they were up by two or more goals and lost those three games at home. That's something that just did not happen last year. And when you couple that with the seven losses that I said against non-playoff teams that I will deem non-playoff teams right now, you can imagine where the Rangers would be. And my point is, is that this is a really good team that just hasn't, executed they have a very absurdly low shooting percentage based on the chances they get every night and their safe percentage hasn't been where it was last year where shesterkin was at this point last year yeah i'm going to continue on this five game stretch though uh the next game they were wednesday night in vegas and they were 1-1 going into the third period and the rangers scored four goals in the third period won that game 5-1 but they only allowed four scoring chances uh, by Vegas in that third period, and all four were low danger. 
So it was a real good shutdown game for them. But keep in mind, no Petrangelo and no Eichel in that game. And then they go into Colorado two nights later, and they have that banged-up Colorado team. They came out, J.D., Colorado, and they had an AHL lineup. There was six or seven guys that I just didn't even know. And I'm hockey, speaking of hockey DB, I was hockey DBing all afternoon trying to figure out who That's everybody fun. was so I didn't sound yeah, like fun. that guy on TV. <laughs> and they, they were just absolutely run out of the rink in the first period. And Jimmy Vesey came out in the first intermission and he said, these AHL guys they have, they're hungry, they're out there earning it, they're making a name for themselves, they're hard to play against. And I'm sitting here at the intermission and I'm about to go on and I'm like, I tell my co-host, I said to John Giannone, aren't we that team? We've got the young guys, why aren't they proven themselves the same way and it had that sense and that feel the Rangers were able to find a way though and they won that game in a shootout and just to wrap it up the best win of the season was in their last game against the New Jersey Devils the Devils came into town they had an 11 game road winning streak the Rangers were losing 3-1 early in the second period and they found a way to win 4-3 in overtime and it was their best game JD of the season so that's where we're at I'll tell you what, there's uh, a lot of nights where we're preparing for our pregame show in the green room and we're talking about what type of team we're going to get and how are they going to play, and the lines have been shuffled quite a bit lately. But to say that there's an actual understanding of where we are right now, uh, I think that everybody's still very unsure and waiting. But this is a really good team that just hasn't executed at this point in the year. Yeah, um, and they're facing tonight a, a really good team that has been executing basically everything perfectly now for over a month because that, that's been the Leafs. They've had a couple of hiccup games, but overall they have just been, yeah, lock solid. And, yeah, they, it's funny too because they, they usually exemplified, hey, this is going to be a run-and-gun offensive team that is going to change hockey because it's going to be about offense, and that's who the Leafs are going to be become is load up on offense, offense, offense. And they've been this unbelievable defensive team all of a sudden, and their goaltenders like have been, incredible and their save percentages are extremely high and it bucks the trend of most of the rest of the league and so you know you are somebody again CEO of Clearside Analytics and former goaltender and someone who obviously very passionate about the position why do you think that so many good goaltenders are having poor statistical seasons why do you think just in general yeah save percentages and all, all these numbers are down almost across the board JD uh, the timing of this question couldn't be better okay and I had this chat with one of our analysts yesterday and the question has been posed to me and and we have nine teams that we work with jd that i supply statistics to from our analytics company as client teams in the league so this comes up a lot and i get asked a lot of these questions and i don't speak publicly on these things and i keep them in-house but this one's fair this is a league-wide question the question i've been getting for the last two weeks is why is goaltending so bad this year all right, And we, you and I both know, we cover the league very closely. Goals are up in the NHL. Safe percentage, I believe, going into last night was 9.05, which is down. It's a down on a 12-year turn. And the fact that goals are up in the NHL right now, I think the interesting aspect is the goalies haven't been that bad this year based on the difficulty that they've faced. The teams are taking more quality shots. That's a statistical fact. Our expected save percentage, goalie-to-goalie, is way down. Now, what that means in layman's terms is the quality of the chances the goalies are facing has never been greater, J.D. 
never been greater. The goalies are facing harder chances. Teams are taking fewer low-danger chances. I've actually been blamed for this uh, from a few of the teams that I work with. They're telling me that it's my doing because I've been preaching Royal Road and how to elevate offense and take mid-danger chances and turn them into high-danger chances and take fewer low-danger chances. And that's really what plays out, J.D., and I've seen this in a lot of recent Leaf games. The winning recipe in the NHL for scoring as a team is to have and create seven or more high-danger chances in a game while taking 12 or fewer low-danger chances. And the reason why that's the key is that you don't want to warm up goalies for grade-A chances. You want goalies to get cold and stagnant and then have a two-on-one. You don't want him to have 15 feelers from the outside and then face a two-on-one. Those two two two-on-ones have a much different success rate. And I feel like in the first time right now, teams are really cluing in on this because we're seeing fewer low-danger shots from team to team and more high-danger chances, and that's what we're seeing. It's The goalies have not been that bad. The chances they're feeling are just that much more difficult. Well, that reflects the eye test almost perfectly for what Matt Murray's been doing this season. And I would say both Leafs goaltenders, but he sticks out in particular because I was looking at, you know, your stats yesterday. He's fifth in goals saved above expected. And this is a big guy who oftentimes has been able to feel the puck throughout a game where it's been shots from the outside, shots from low danger areas. And then, yeah, he's made some bigger saves later in the game. I guess looking at those numbers and, and the formula that the Leafs have in front of him, do you think that that's going to stay pretty consistent for Matt Murray as long as he's healthy this year? I think that the best way to say it is one of my friends that's a scout in the NHL, a longtime scout, his name's Dan Palango. He's done amazing work for the Vancouver Canucks over the years. He's done amazing work right now, recently in the last few years with Judd Brackett in Minnesota. And the way that he always said it to me was, Steve, the only predictor of future performance is past performance. So how can we really look forward, I think that I validate what the Leafs have done up until this point, J.D., by just looking at statistically, not is it sustainable, but is what they have done up until this point, does it represent what has happened statistically? Uh, For instance, a few weeks ago we had, and this is a few weeks ago as in six weeks ago, we had Philadelphia come into town. And do you remember when Philadelphia came out of the gate and they were like six and two and six, two and one, I believe they were? Yeah, because Carter Hart was incredible. Remember that? Yeah. And so, again, you and I, I know, listen, man, I listen to you. I know you know your stuff. You follow it closely. You're looking at analytics. You're watching the games. But you can't tell me that Philadelphia is a 6-2-1 team when they come into MSG six weeks ago. And I look at them statistically, and they're the worst in the league. And what I would say is that this is just going to end abruptly, and it's going to get bad because Carter Hart is playing out of his mind right now, and that's not going to sustain. Well, that's an easy one. To me, that's low-hanging fruit where the analytics back up what has not happened for that Philadelphia team. And sure enough, the bottom falls out. Now, with the Leafs, that's the other end of the spectrum. The analytics that we keep, the way that we track scoring chances, it supports the strength of the team and them continuing to play well. Uh, Matt Murray plays in a very good environment, as does Samsonov. They play in an environment where the array of chances they face night to night is pretty favorable to having a strong save percentage. So to answer your question, everything that we have here in my monitors in front of me supports the Leafs continuing to play well. Great regular season team, J.D., 
You know, I've heard you on the Kipper show a lot, and you guys have good times about getting into the past and hitting the way back machine and looking at why it hasn't worked out in the playoffs over the years. What we're saying is that this Toronto Maple Leafs team is built for success in the regular season, and I still don't believe they're built for success in the postseason. Hmm. What, what gives you that concern? My concern is the things that we can't measure. The things that we can't measure, which are uh, grit, skating through people, being able to win battles, and, and most of all, being comfortable being the favorite. I think the aura and energy around the team as a favorite, when you're up 3-1 against Montreal, and uh, I don't have to go through every example that yeah. you and I are aware of, but <laughs> you know where I'm going with that. Yeah, you know, why can't you close? What mentally... Yeah is the hurdle that we as a group don't have that belief or do we not care enough and are we okay with our cookies and our cake you know cake meaning money but yep. cookies meaning points but you know is that is that just where we're at right now with the team i don't think that they've moved off of that yet and uh you know look i'd, li- I'd like to be wrong because i grew sure. up a toronto maple Leafs fan so i hope that they win i do i really do all my friends and family back home would go nuts so if, I'm, if my rooting interest lies anywhere, I just haven't seen them built that way yet. And I so, don't think anything's changed. Well, I think that's especially interesting coming from a guy like you because, yeah, you are someone who played and you're also someone who, yeah, uh, again, you, you trade in analytics, you trade in numbers. And so I think that a lot of your colleagues or a lot of, yeah, your peers would try to remove a lot of those elements from – yeah, the, the data that they're taking in, right? And, and this is usually the, my kind of favorite analysis is where it's balanced between the two things. Um, I, I'm, I've been reading just basically a lot on sports psychology recently and, and kind of trying to deep dive into, yeah, reasons for optimism and pessimism about this Leafs team because I think that that's the most compelling and fascinating story of the year. Like, there are so many people that are getting excited about this run of Leafs play, and I'm one of them too, right? Like, uh, I think that you should just enjoy the moment as a sports fan and you should have fun with it and you shouldn't always kind of like doomcast for what the future is going to bring you. And I think that there are markers that this team is going to be different or is a little bit different this year. But yeah, um, I think it's kind of funny that people right now, this has been a, a social media thing that I've been kind of focused on is there have been a lot of Leaf fans that are dunking on those people who panicked about the team over the first couple of weeks. And, it, and you go, well, you're just using a, you know, a positive sample that is kind of irrelevant in the long run. Like the Leafs have been a good right. regular season team before you said it. So the idea that you can draw a conclusion from the play that they've had the last month seems a little foolish to me, especially it just seems like confirmation bias, but whatever. But the thing that I'm most encouraged by with this Leafs team is that they really did go through some like a different level of adversity to start this season with their team and then they responded to it well and they are doing those things that you mentioned in terms of like limiting those dangerous scoring chances and getting the saves that they need and that to me feels like well it translates to the playoffs I guess where I'm going with this is how hard do you think it's going to be for them to play this way over the course of an entire season? Because I, I think what gets lost in their recent play is that it's it's December 15th today. <laughs> you know, the season has yeah. months and months to go. Well, why why does the Toronto Maple Leafs, since before the 0405 lockout, the last series that the Leafs won was prior to 0405 lockout, correct? Yeah, oh, absolutely correct. Painfully correct. And and remind me if I'm wrong on this point, are they not the only NHL team that has not 
won a playoff series since the 0405 lockout? I don't know that conclusively, but it sounds right. And if it is, then that oh. really hurts more. That hurts more. So that's that's what I want to do. I want to dig into why. Mm-hmm. I want to dig into why. And I'm, I'm happy you brought up psychology. Do you know that I, I hired a sports psychologist, J.D., because I had to clean out my closet. I had to clean out my mental closet when I was 27 years old. I was stuck in the minor leagues. And you know what my issue was? I didn't take the teams that were beneath us in the standing seriously. And I would find myself playing the Albany River, River Rats on a Tuesday night in front of 1,500 people in Albany and think I had it made. And, and I'd get humbled in the first period by giving up three and then maybe getting pulled in that game, and it hurts me statistically. And if you're not a 920 save percentage, at least in my era in the American League, you don't even get a sniff at the NHL. And then sometimes, no, I, I, what I did have a good reputation for was playing really big in the big games but playing down to my competition and then really hurting myself statistically against the poor teams. Hired a sports psychologist, and I was able to work with that sports psychologist. Every Wednesday, uh, they were in the, she was in the Berkshire Mountains, which is an hour from Hartford where I was playing for the Wolfpack, and during that year, worked on myself. And I remember saying to myself at the end of the season, why didn't I have the courage to hire a sports psychologist before age 27? I led the league. I led the American League that year in save percentage and goals against, and I was on an NHL ticket after that. But why didn't I do it sooner, right? Mm-hmm. What was I afraid of? If I would have done it sooner, I would have had a very better understanding of myself. And I, you hope, because I'm very familiar with how the Leafs have sports science, sleep doctors, skills coach, development team. Do they have the right sports psychologist that connects with the players to be able to understand why haven't you been successful for so long in these big moments? Why are when you're the contender, can't you close? Why? Because if you can't figure that out, JD, it's going to happen again. Okay. Because what happens once that's egregious can't happen twice. And if it shows up twice, it surely happens up a third and fourth and fifth time. And I don't, you know, you and I could have a few beers and really jog this down, but there have been new ways to disappoint this fan base for far too long. Yeah. Um, it's interesting though, the dynamic between those things, because part of the reason why I feel so optimistic about the Leafs this year is that, uh, to me, Mitch Marner is just playing completely comfortably, that he's not overthinking the game. Things are coming to him with just second nature. He looks confident. He looks comfortable. But, uh, yeah, a lot of these readings will tell you that one of the worst ways you can perform or play um, or project for high-stress situations is by having too many where you're prepping under low-stakes ones. And that's what I worry about the Leafs right now, is that they enter a phase of comfortability and that this extends over the course of a regular season where they kind of sit in the standings in a good spot. And all of the reps that they end up drilling are ones that are, you know, low-risk, low-stake and then you don't have that yeah. same preparation. I just don't know how you get that over the course of a regular season without also burning out. And I also don't know how you get the sports psychologist. This has always been the tricky one to me. The person that is telling you how to think better. But what we continue to learn from sports is that the, as good as something like self-talk is going into a game, right? Like we, the self-talk and self-motivation and trying to believe that you're going to be good. That once you actually get into these games, the the less you're actually actively thinking about those things, the, the better off you are, right? It's more about trying to achieve that flow state rather than it is overthinking the actions that you're doing that are supposed to come second nature. And that's a big reason why we choke. 
And so, yeah, I just think that this is a team that is stuck in an impossible position for the rest of the season, but also should be noted that, yeah, when the world looked like it was crumbling at the very beginning of the year, responded with their very best hockey. And so to me, it's like that's the only sample we have that looks anything like what they needed for the playoffs. And and I am, yeah, encouraged by something like that. I'm just worried about the wear and tears of a regular season and being in December and, and yeah, what this is going to look like even two months from now, February 15th, right? J.D., I don't think the league's set up for those hurdles that you require for this team. Mm-hmm. It's, there's too many bad teams, J.D. There's too yeah, many there's bad so teams. many. It's horrific. What, what was that? That What was that American Hockey League Anaheim team that you just smoked? Oh, my Seven God. nothing. I mean, right. come on. There's too many nights like that, right? So what are you supposed to do if you are Mitch Marner? Of course he wants better competition. Of course he wants to feel what it's going to feel like to be coming through a really tough, the teeth of a tough defense, because when you get shut down and you're paired off in the playoffs against a tough opponent over seven games, how do you adjust? It's very difficult. I think that that's something that definitely hurts you. I do like one thing you said, though. It's, it's like you don't want this to be foreign to you when the playoffs begins, correct? Mm-hmm. No. So if you're not getting that competition in games, game over game, because you've got to play your schedule, how can your coach and team create that environment for you on a day-to-day? Now, you've got a highly skilled team. How can, we, how can we up the ante so that we have more of a focused, intense, game-like repetition through everything we do in our practice? How can we create that environment so that the practice is so challenging, the games become easy? Or the practice is so challenging and so game-like that it's not foreign to us when it gets difficult during the playoffs. That's why I love player development, and that's why I love team development, because and I'll tell you what, J.D., that's why I like stats. It really helps me support putting together my practice plan for the goalie that I'm training so that he feels game, intense reps. And I'll explain how I do that. A simple exercise like a Royal Road pass, a pass from one side of the ice to the other. If I have a goaltender that on six repetitions is allowing four or five, guess what happens? He turns off because he believes the drill is too hard and it's not game-like, and it wouldn't happen that way in a game, okay? So it's my job as an instructor to widen that drill out, give him a little more time on the pass, because I know statistically if he's working on the edge of his ability, he should be allowing three on six, not four or five, but three. But when he's really kicking it into another gear, he's giving up two on six. He's giving up one on six. And then I manage the drill and maybe challenge him a little bit more. But you know what we always do is we're always staying in that mindset of growth, which is if you're familiar with myelin and how it grows, it's, it's the um, gray muscle matter that wraps the neuro circuits in your brain that allows things to fire faster. So that if I'm standing five feet from you, J.D., and I throw an eraser at your face, you're able to get a catch and respond quickly because we've trained it to do so. Because you can see my body language affecting the way that you're about to anticipate and read what's coming. These things are important to player development, and I don't know if they get talked about enough, but what happens on the ice in practice has to be game-like. And statistics and analytics can support what game-like is so that it does work its way through your mental rehearsal and your reps that you're able to get over and over and over again. And the way I would – so I'm on the ice, J.D., every morning. I I just got off the ice before I got on the call with you. I work with young athletes every morning. I'm telling you, I think the reason why I even got into analytics was because I wanted more answers for player development. This is where my passion is. But when we were 
on the ice an hour ago, the goalie that I was working with, we had this conversation about how he needs to reach what I re- refer to as fire, focused, intense repetitions every day. You referred to it as flow state or the zone. That's how we get there. Our environment has to be set up in a place where the athlete can get into that zone, can get into flow state. The only way you can get in there is if the environment that's set up around you is prepared for that athlete to get into that mental exercise. So once again, the game doesn't feel foreign to you. You're always in it. And in focused, intense repetitions every day, it builds myelin in your brain, and that muscle matter helps your circuits fire faster so you can respond quicker. Yeah, um, I I love it. A little too deep for you, or you're with me? No, no. <laughs> the, the thing is, is again, this is a lot of, yeah, the stuff that I've been focused on. I guess my, my curiosity is when does that, you know, can you overcome that with reps in a regular season with a group or does that start to kick in those repetitions? Like is that part of the reason why you choke is you look around the room, you see similar faces, you feel similar scenarios and then yeah, pressure starts to get to you, which is yeah. Part, one of the strongest well, cases. Well, JD, I think. Guess of, what? If you don't, if you're not prepared and you haven't been working yeah. in the proper environment under the right conditions, guess what? You, you get, get no nervous shot. because yeah. yeah, you don't feel like you deserve it, JD. And mm-hmm. that's a big part of this. I want the Leafs should feel after it's been earned through a regular season and through proper dedication and, and discipline and sacrifice through a season, they should be going up against the Montreal Canadiens up 3-1 and saying, F you guys, we deserve this. You're not touching the puck. And the goalie should be able to look at the goalie 200 feet away and say, I'm shutting it down because I deserve this and you don't. And when you, as an athlete, give yourself permission to deserve it's very important and very powerful because you can't take it from me now. I want it more than you. Try. And that's uh, where see, you get passionate about that, and it shows into your game. Yeah, see, that that there is what I, I just don't think can be answered in a regular season, and I, I certainly think that, yeah, that's a Not fair question. Not in one that's too to easy, J.D. No, Not in one no, that's no. too easy. Right? No, and not yeah, one not in one, not in one that's too easy, and yeah, something that come playoff time, I think, has been a fair criticism of them in the past, and something that yeah is probably going to be the most important question or mindset that this team can, yeah, try to put themselves in moving forward. Um, no, Steve, this was uh, as insightful as I expected it to be, and yeah, this I think that we're uh, a better audience and yeah, a better show host for having done this. So thanks for making time today, man. I very much appreciate it. Hey, thanks, buddy. Uh, keep up the great work, buddy. Awesome. You too, pal. Take care. Enjoy the game tonight. Steve Valiquet, CEO of ClearSight Analytics, former NHL goaltender and consultant, uh, an analyst for the Rangers on MSG. Um, I, I'm going to have more thoughts on that tomorrow. But uh, it's time for action. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings app to get in on the action. Must be 19+. plus. Must be in Ontario. Please play responsibly. Okay, so I, you know me. I don't bet on my own team. And that's the game tonight. It's the Seahawks and the Niners. Um, I did December for SN Bets today. Uh I took a long shot, all right? You can go to their page to see the, the bet that I did, the long shot that I took. I just, I, I can't get over how physical one team is over the other, but then here's this thing. It's a fishy line, right? It's a Thursday night game. It's a short week. As much as I love Brock Purdy, still is going into Seattle and beating a team that's genuinely playing for their playoff lives. So I just, to me, this is a little bit of a sketchy game to be betting one side of the line. But that being said, I, I do like the more physical group. I said it yesterday in the Niners. Um, there's a couple things I like in this game. Everyone is focused in on Christian McCaffrey. Everyone is. There's just seems it seems odd that his rushing total is 79 and a half. Seems odd that his receiving total is 37 and a half. It's just very low. 
It's very low for a guy that we all anticipate having a tremendous workload, especially since he got to rest after his team blew out the Buccaneers last week, and they didn't really have to go to him in the fourth quarter. He's like kind of their guy. So anyway, I'm going to go with something a little ju- bit juicier. I'm going to go with a little something a little bit spicier, and that's just simply I think he's going to have over 100 rushing yards. If you don't like the rushing yards, then go up to the receiving yards. But you can either take him at DraftKings at over 50 receiving yards at plus 140, or you can take his alternate rushing yards at over 100 at plus 185. So, yeah, I just... I think he's going to get the ball a ton today. Uh, I think he's going to get a lot of work, and I don't think that the Seahawks defense is very is well built to to slow him down or to stop him. I also think it's worth noting that DK Metcalf has really struggled in this matchup against the Niners, and his total is kind of low, sixty four and a half. But yeah, look back at what Seattle did against these guys earlier in the year. This defense is just humming. It's been amazing, and yeah, DK's last four outings against the Niners have all been incredibly. Incredibly underwhelming. These are them. Three catches, 21 yards, no touchdowns. Four catches, 65 yards, one touchdown. Five catches, 60 yards, no TDs. And last game out, four catches, 35 for zero. So the the number would tell you that there might be a little bit of value on the under um, at minus 120 on his 64 and a half yards. I'm not playing it because, God, I hope DK goes off against these guys. But, yeah, um, there's there's something there. Anyway, quick break. Let's come back. Let's talk to my buddy Joe Cacharo about why it seems to be pretty easy to diagnose what's wrong with the Raptors, but why it's harder to diagnose whether or not they made a huge mistake. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So there's a lot of hand-wringing about what's wrong with the Raptors. And I, I, it's it's strange because I, I saw someone tweet yesterday about, and I can't remember who it was, but someone was like, hey, there's all these competing theories about what's wrong with the Raps. I, I don't understand this line of thinking. They can't shoot. Some of their good players have not played very well. Guys that they're counting on a lot have not turned out, which is Scotty Barnes and Fred Van Vliet more specifically than anybody else. They've had injuries. And they've got no depth. Like, like, what is what is there to figure out? Like, what what are we missing here? What is the part of the equation that I do not understand? Because it seems pretty straightforward. Uh, Joe Cacharo, senior writer at the Score, joins me now. Um, what what am I missing here? Why why do people seem to be having a hard time with this? Yeah, I don't think you're missing much. Uh, I think you, you pretty much nailed it on the head. Uh, first and foremost, they have shot the ball poorly. They are losing the mass uh, competition every night, in that the Raptors by way of the uh, you know the scheme that they use defensively the aggressive um, you know star loading scheme that gives up a ton of threes they end up in a situation where they're giving up a ton of threes and they're not taking enough or making nearly enough threes so they're losing that battle every night now usually last season for example they could offset that by crashing the offensive glass forcing a lot of turnovers and then scoring in transition and they're still doing those things but not quite to the same degree they were last year um and and they just haven't been able to play keep up you know or catch up and and then take the lead kind of thing just to overcome that math disadvantage they're facing and then like you mentioned uh fred van vliet and scotty barnes not playing up to what everyone knows they're capable of what the raptors 
thought they could get from them this season. Fred, obviously, well, Fred and Scotty were great last night, but uh, they're going to need that more consistently. The general shooting of Fred, OG, and Gary, those are three guys that combine to shoot about 23s a game for you on a team that already doesn't take a lot. So those guys are taking the bulk of your threes, all three of them way below their uh, career averages from three. Yeah, Fred and, and Gary especially. Yeah. Um, not one guy's know, got a hand injury. Right? Like, exactly. And then, like, you, uh, OG is out with that hip uh, issue. He's out, uh, I think, another week. You look at all the injuries they've already had. So, you know, not, not to make an excuse with the injuries, but that is part of it. And then, yeah, when you combine that with uh, being at a math disadvantage every night, the few guys who you did depend on to be good shooters, not being good shooters through a third of the season, uh, and the lack of depth you mentioned, that is not a recipe for good basketball or winning basketball. And almost like when you really, when you list everything like that and you consider how tough the schedule has been, you almost think like we're going to be like, and, and there are eight games under 500 now and they're really in a hole. There, there are only two games under 500, still not good enough, obviously, given what this team thought they could be this year, what I still think they can be. But I guess the sky's not completely falling when you consider all the things that have gone wrong and where they are. Yeah, okay, so they are two games below 500, which doesn't sound the worst. They're like 10th in the Eastern Conference, and yeah, do I think that when they play at their best that they immediately elevate above a bunch of these different teams that are kind of in this, like, uh, I don't know, middle class of the Eastern Conference? Absolutely, I do. Um, I don't think that they're bad enough and that they will be bad enough over the course of the regular season to fall into, like, the Magic Pistons-Hornets territory in the East, and so... It begs the question, like, what are you supposed to do? But you, you said it, okay, they can be better. But don't you feel like we've found out at least enough of, we, we know they can be better, but not good enough. And, and this brings me to kind of like play in for what. Do we have enough sample now with this team and with this kind of core that they should be picking a direction one way or the other this year? I mean, I want to say yes. I think you can definitely look at the way the first 28 games have gone and say, even if you think they should be better or will be better, they're clearly not good enough to, like, compete for a title or anything close to that this season, right? Like, even if you just look at the East, I mean, I think for as poorly as the Raptors have played, even, like, something like the three-seed isn't out of question. The play-in, obviously, isn't isn't out of question either. But having said all that, you know, they're not going to be on the same level of Boston or Milwaukee this season. Like, I think that much should be clear. But I say that, and then it's still, like, you know, I said it um, a couple weeks ago, too. The, the Celtics late January last year were a game or two under 500. Everyone thought they had split up Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. They seemed like this dysfunctional team. And then, you know, in the span of like 10, 11 months, they went from that to almost won a championship, got to the finals, and now look like an absolute juggernaut. So not saying that's going to happen with the Raptors. I'm not saying they have the exact same personnel, but I am saying – it is such a long season. Things do change so quickly. And so while I agree they definitely do not look good enough to compete this year, it's not like we have to go that far back to see an example of a team looking completely dysfunctional, looking like something needs to be done, and then you know sticking to their guns and now reaping the rewards for that. Yeah, I think that the difference is, though, is that, frankly, that Celtics team was more talented. They had better top-tier talent on their roster. They did have more depth. Um and, like, those are things the Raptors don't have. The other piece of it is when, when people bring up the Celtics example, I always think of, like, yeah, it was always dumb to the, the idea of splitting up Jalen and Tatum because those guys are, the you know, the same age, the same timeline. They, they yeah. fit the exact same thing. The difficulty with the Raptors is that you have Fred Van Vliet, 
who is going to require potentially over $100 million at the end of the season, you know, heading into his 30s, as Scotty Barnes in his, you know, early 20s. Like, the, t- the timelines for the Raptors' decision-making isn't the same. If they had a bunch of young guys or a couple of young guys that were struggling throughout the season, like, I think it would be foolish to be talking about, hey, should you pick a different direction by swinging one of them to... Re-? No, 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 no. This is a timeline argument for me. And, you know, you were saying something on the Raptors show, and it's, I've been meaning to have you on for a while, because you said something on Will's show about, I want to say, three-ish weeks ago, whenever it was right around they were playing the Cavs. And you were talking about potentially missing out on the window to trade Donovan Mitchell, right? And I started thinking about... But, but I started thinking about all the different potential swings that this team has missed, right? And I talked to Grange about it, and I said, hey, why didn't they, weren't they more in, on Mitchell? Because the asking price was not that high, even though Laurie Markkinen has turned into a guy that people are, are referring to as discount Dirk. Like, he wasn't that guy at the time. Like, yeah. that's, that, that's not a thing. Like, I don't want to hear about, like, they didn't have a Laurie Markkinen. Because, like, no, they did. Um, I don't even think that Chris Boucher's value would have been that far off of Laurie Markkinen's at the time. Um, I keep looking back, and I, I've been compiling guys like Jordan Clarkson's having this awesome season, right? And he's someone I kept referencing and saying, yeah, you know, they could really use a, a Jordan Clarkson type of guy. Mitchell was out there. You know, Turner was out there. They obviously checked in on Brogdon, and I think he had a little bit more of a decision with it. He decided to go yeah. to Boston over Toronto. So, like, there are some of these things that are more excusable than the other. And I look at it and go, does Masai get credit or criticism for this last summer? Like, should he get credit for being more patient and realizing that maybe this team wasn't as good as we all thought they might be? Or is there criticism that maybe they should have been a little bit more aggressive and moved in for some of those pieces because if they just had one or two more guys, maybe this all fits together much better? Like, that's that's the piece of the puzzle right now that I think is really confusing. I think the criticism is well-deserved when it comes to not addressing the obvious need that this roster had coming out of last season. That's where I think the criticism is 100% deserved, whether it's Messiah, Bobby Webster, the front office in general, that put this team together. Because I think coming out of last year, despite it being this kind of like feel good, they're coming back story, you know, the Raptors are back, the culture's back, they're a winning team again. They pushed Philly to six after going down 3 nothing. Pascal came back to an all-NBA status. Fred was an all-star. At the end of the day, by the end of last season, we very much knew what the, like, they needed, um, a yeah. true rim protector a real seven-footer, they needed some shooting, they needed some more depth, and really the only thing they did to address any of that was they drafted Christian Colocal, which from a future perspective, great. I think he's got great, tremendous defensive upside, but he's not exactly the rim protector, the seven-footer that you need right now to build off last year, right? They didn't, they, the shooting they added was Otto Porter, who is a bit older. Like, I, I liked that signing, but if that was the, the one move that you were like making to address your depth and shooting it clearly was not enough so that's where i definitely think the criticism is warranted in terms of like kind of going after more of the big fish yeah i said like you said i said it on uh will's show the raptors show that i'm not sure how close or if they got close to donovan mitchell at all but if they didn't i think that and then then to me that is a giant mistake because given what he ended up going for and what this team needs exactly like i said on that show it just would have been such a perfect fit of star talent and good team with a very obvious need. I think that would have completed this team in a way that we would be talking about them having legitimate title hopes this season. So, uh, yeah, that that should be frustrating for Raptors fans as of the fact they didn't really address the obvious needs. But you also made a good point in that there's probably some patience that was needed too with maybe not selling too much of the farm right now if there was reason for Masai Ujiri and company to believe that they're not quite there yet. 
Yeah, see, th- that's what I mean about it's hard for me to criticize when I go, I'm not sure yeah. they would have been a contender even with Donovan Mitchell, which sounds weird to say, but yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced even with some of the depth pieces, and you could argue that those are easier to acquire and maybe they would have been able to figure that out, but who knows? Like, what would have had to go out the door in terms of that trade, too? You're pilfering right. from a team that, that doesn't have depth that doesn't have enough players right now like yeah christian coloco you mentioned it's like they need a rim protecting center uh we know this because they start him a lot and then they play him for six minutes because that's all he can do they go all right that's a reminder every night of hey this guy's ready to play six minutes in the nba it's actually not he shouldn't even be playing six minutes and Otto porter jr like "Ah, i was fine with the signing too it was like what else are you gonna do with it but yeah it's been like five seasons since he's been able to stay healthy like so this is a kind of an expected result for a guy that's like legacy since he left washington is he's great in theory you know (laughs) and he finally put that theory together for golden state a little bit in the playoffs the guy and blake has these receipts i i I always wondered what it would have cost them to get jordan clarkson uh during the offseason especially as utah was doing their fire sale and now that he's been performing extremely well it's a bit frustrating to me If, if i have a criticism for this team and this is something that, you know, gleaning from talking to Grange a little bit and trying to get some pieces, because getting stuff from the Raptors is so hard. But yeah. it really does seem like they put such an extreme emphasis on defense that I, I think that there's a little bit of maybe they're not seeing the forest through the trees of, of getting guys who can just be really good offensive players. Yeah, well, look, that was a lot of the argument even in the summer. When I, w- when I, I made a video where I talked about how um, – Donovan Mitchell, when you consider what you'd actually have to give up to get each player, okay, not the, yeah. each player's actual talent, but when you consider what you'd have to give up to bring each player in, the stage of their careers, the contracts and all that, I made the argument in this video for the Scores YouTube channel that the team that trades for Donovan Mitchell would actually be like getting better by a greater amount than the team that trades for Kevin Durant because of the, the different outgoing packages and whatever People went absolutely yeah, nuts, and one of the biggest complaints, especially among Raptors fans, was that Donovan Mitchell doesn't play defense and he doesn't fit the Raptors' mold. Yeah. But as much as I understand the whole Vision 6-9 thing, and I, I do see the promise in it in the future and whatever, you should not build a basketball team out of only one style of player. You shouldn't build any yes. sports team out of any of just one style of player. And so yeah. if, if – like, I'll be honest. The Jordan Clarkson thing, less frustrating for me because – with Jordan, like the bench gunner type guys, even though I think Clarkson's an improved player, he's more of a playmaker now. I still do think those guys are a little bit more of like dime a dozen players where I don't think it's that hard to find someone of like similar impact to Jordan Clarkson who probably makes less money and would cost you less on the trade market at any point in the season. Whereas like a guy like Donovan Mitchell to me, like that is an absolutely elite yes. offensive player who has been the engine of elite offenses throughout his career basically from the moment he stepped in the nba and to kind of thumb your nose at that because he doesn't he's not a great defender or like maybe he's small like whatever you think and that he doesn't fit the mold is just so ignorant whether it's a fan or a front office member who thinks that way um yeah so i'm with you there like uh, trust me, I value defense and two-way players too. Ideally, you want your stars to be that. I 100% agree with, you know, whether it's beside the front office, whoever thinks that way. That's, you should think that way. But at the same time, I feel like sometimes what ends up happening is people end up overvaluing defense compared to offense when it's like, look, there are two sides of the game. There are The Raptors have added plenty of defense-first players who end up making you play four-on-five on offense, and that's not good either. 
Right, like they've done so many of those, like the Patrick McCaws of the world that Nick Nurse has yeah. fallen in love with, right? These guys who he just wants to run out there and say over and over again and say, hey, it doesn't matter, we're just going to play defense. Like this is an offensive league. This is this is a league where offense is more important than defense. Like I don't know, like defense wins championships, okay? Uh, you know who actually wins championships? Uh, superstar offensive players. <laughs> like yeah. that, and, and we tend to overvalue the defensive guys. I just, this is why, again, criticism and uh, credit why it's so hard for me is maybe what they just needed was more of a sample to figure out the pieces that need to operate around a group like this. But it's yeah. hard to have that much faith in this front office when they miss so drastically on the pieces around them now. Like, this wasn't supposed to be some throwaway season, right? Like, Fred and no. Siakam are in their primes. And so it's, yeah, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around the idea that they were like, oh, yeah, this is all about, like, exploration and experimentation when, yeah, there, there are legitimate contract stakes and, and real foundational decisions that they're going to have to make, like, now, this season, after this one. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the faith in the front office, I think it just comes down, and not that I think, you know, winning in 2019 should get you a pass for life, but I do think the body of work is there with this front office where I definitely don't sure. think anyone should lose faith in them in general. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm with you, and I understand the complaint from fans in general that this was not supposed to be a throwaway season. I still don't think it will be, but it, it early on, it definitely seems like it, it's, it's a lost season early where – they came in with what you'd think were expectations. And now it does seem to be more of like a experimentation season of, Oh, we're just finding out what we have. And uh, I don't know, maybe even the lines of communication were blurred there. I know that's something even will talked about on that episode of the Raptor show. I was on where like, what were the expectations for this team? I'm not saying every single team in the NBA has to come out on media day and say, Hey, these are our expectations. I know that's not realistic, but with the Raptors, I thought it was really clouded. Like I, you know, the players are going to say what they say. They always say they're in it to win a championship and this and that. But I, I am really genuinely curious to know what the front office's internal expectations were. Was it, you know, we got to at least take a step forward and win a playoff round, maybe get to 50 wins? Or was it, you know, given the way we're building for the future, if we just want Scotty Barnes to take a step forward, we want to make sure Siakam is an established all-NBA player and that last year wasn't just another blip, like – and then if all those things come true, you know, whatever happens from a win-loss perspective isn't as important. I don't know. Um, we don't really know what the internal expectations are. I, but I'd argue whatever they were, the first 28 games of this season have not lived up to them. Yeah. Well, again, you have a, a president who says play in for what? Yeah. And so it's hard for me to envision that being around 500 and not being bad enough to tank and not being good enough to win was uh, – yeah, <laughs> that needs to see anything close to what they had anticipated or expected or hoped for. You know what the one thing, though, I'll, and it's not even that I push back on that, but what I'd say to that, because I know that's something a lot of people have brought up. Like, if they're in the play-in mix, this is a guy, like Masai famously said, play-in for what? The one thing I'd add, and I don't know if this is how Masai feels, but at least for me, there's a big difference between being able to say play-in for what – in the spot the Raptors were in two years ago when it was like expiring Lowry, no true young building blocks other than that they had made it, like they had traded for Gary. If you considered him a young building block at the time, there was a big question mark about what Siakam could be because he was coming off another disappointing season. Like, I think there was a lot more reason to say play in for what then than there would be now when you've got Scotty Barnes like in the mix. Um, you've got all your like future draft picks in tow. 
Siakam has established himself as an all like OG has kind of started to yeah. take the leap. People want so again, I'm not. They definitely do not want to be in the play-in. Don't get me wrong. No one does. But I do think that even with that specific, you know, playing for what I do think there's some like context and nuance needed there. Where yeah. and I kind of t- I tweeted this last night too. Where even in terms of where they are in the standings, definitely not good. But there's a difference between just being in the middle of the standings and like being a stuck in the middle team, right? That's like all in with no young building blocks, limited draft 100%. capital. And, and I think that's, that's the difference where do they want to be in the play in hundred percent? Not, but if they were to be in the play in this year, I think it's a lot, um, a lot less of a waste in their minds than it would have been two years ago, given the difference, like in the franchise settings now to then. Yeah, I completely agree. Joe, we got to run. Um, Great as always, man. Uh, again, like I love listening to your stuff because I always like end up actually, yeah, thinking about it. So I appreciate you coming on today, and, and we'll do this again soon. I didn't even get into soccer with you because I went. Yeah, no, appreciate uh, you having me on. Always a pleasure. Yeah, Joe Casharo, uh, senior writer for the Score. Um, subscribe, review, rate. We'll see you tomorrow.